Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Alex. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing fine. What have you been up to? I'm mostly baking in the sun. I think I've been having a less exciting time than you. You've been gadding about at festivals still, haven't you? I say that every single week. I just <laughs> don't know what people think. It has actually... <laughs> Is this woman ever at home? Does she wake up with one of those little Madonna mics over her ears? Sometimes it does slightly feel like it, but it's just the crush of the season, really. Um, I have been at the Boris House Festival of Writing and Ideas, which is here in Ireland, very near to where I live. I am now, that is it. I am festivals and festival free for a little while. But it was very nice because I got a chance to say hello to Paul Muldoon. Uh, who is our guest on today's podcast Uh, and he was talking about all sorts of things at the festival and as were lots and lots of wonderful writers and we've just met at that festival we had it was a wonderful time one of the joys for me was doing a, a long interview with Sarah Waters OBE who is just the most wonderful describer of her work and reader of her work and talker about her work and that for me was an enormous thrill. Mm. Does she have a book coming out? She is working on something. And I feel that I am allowed to say that because she did, in fact, say it in front of an audience. But um, she'd actually come to talk about her previous work, but also because she was talking about the film adaptation of The Little Stranger with the film's director, Lenny Abramson, and indeed the film's star, Ruth Wilson, who was also very exciting. Mm. You talked to all the stars, Minnie Driver, Ruth Wilson, 
I, I like that thought, but I'll, I'll just say it occurred to me afterwards because there, it was a very starry festival. Jeremy Irons was there in a boiler suit. <laughs> he wore a boiler suit. It was quite the look. It was quite startling, actually. Uh, okay. Very, very, very dashing. But I did come away from it and feel it was there was a touch of the sort of Gosford Parks about it. And I was very definitely uh, sort of Eileen Atkins getting the suppers in the kitchen. Down I was about below. to ask if you were, if you were, but it's always more interesting down below, isn't it? Uh, that, that is she said, only ever having been down below. Lucy, I am, <laughs> I am so very much a denizen of the below stairs. I am that person with her ear to the door as Ivan Novello is, is playing. But there is, as you say, no better place to be. Coming up on this week's show, we are joined, as I mentioned, by Paul Muldoon to talk about Ulysses, or at least the very first few words of Ulysses. And we have an edited extract of an event from the Hay Festival with the wonderful novelist Tessa Hadley. So if you're listening on the day this podcast comes out, then happy Bloomsday. It's 100 years since James Joyce's Ulysses was published in full on his 40th birthday, February the 2nd, 1922, by the indefatigable Sylvia Beach. And Bloomsday is June the 16th, the day on which Ulysses was set. A little story of a day, as Joyce cutely described it. I've borrowed that description from a wonderful, dense and elusive essay written for us by Paul Muldoon, and we're delighted that he joins us today to explore just the first sentence of Ulysses. Paul, many thanks for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, it's lovely to have you. Now, I wasn't joking about the bit about the first sentence. You really are talking about the first sentence of the book, aren't you? Though obviously with reference to later sections and other works. It's, is this essentially a, a very, very close reading, would you say? I think it's uh, perhaps <laughs> an overly close reading in some regards, <laughs> if such a thing is possible. Needless to say, I was brought up in, in that tradition um, of, of reading uh, closely. I, I was uh, brought up in these wake, I suppose, of I.A. Richards and all his people, F.R. Levis, whom I had the pleasure of hearing speak once. So that's very much where I come from in terms of lit crit. And it's also, I think, uh, needless to say, historically, it doesn't quite add up because Joyce <laughs> somewhat precedes that particular movement. However, mm. there is that story of someone meeting him in the street, uh, needless to say, and asking him how he had been getting on that day. He said, oh, it's been a great day. I've uh, I've spent all day working on a sentence. And he said, <laughs> he said, the person said to him, well, what, what's the problem? Did you not have the right words? And he said, of course, well, I have the right words. I don't have the right order, which, of course, is a remake of um, Coleridge's remark about um, prose being the right words in the right order and the very best words in the best order in terms of poetry. So he was a writer who put a lot of thought into everything he did. And I think uh, we owe it to him that we return the favour. So what I've done here is to focus on the first three or four words of uh, Ulysses, or useless as he refers to it <laughs> in, um, in Finnegan's Wake, stately, plump, buck, mulligan are the first three or four words. So I go to town on that to some extent, and really uh, I could probably spend uh, even longer than I already have thinking about those words. But I'll give you an example. 
The word stately, for example, uh, is, a, is a description of how Buck Mulligan enters uh, the room in the tower in which Stephen Dedalus uh, is living. But it's a word that's charged, of course. Its first syllable is state. It's a way of describing the smooth gliding uh, movement as if he were part of a procession, perhaps indeed a procession in a church um, of how Buck uh, enters the room. But it also, of course, includes the word state. And though the Irish state didn't come into uh, being until much later uh, in 1922, notions of statehood, the Irish question had been raised for rather a long time. And it was a question that exercised Joyce much more than we give him due. We, some people tend to think of Joyce as not been particularly interested in politics much after his interest in Charles Stuart Parnell. Um, he was interested in him, we know, but perhaps not much else. And I think it's clear that he, his interest in um, Irish, uh, the notion of an Irish nation coming into being uh, was, was much more profound. Yes, it's throughout the book, isn't it? I was going to say, um, I mean, we're going to talk about this, the religious references and as classical and literary and bodily and all sorts of things. But there's a lot of actual nitty gritty politics there as well, isn't there? There is. And one of the ways in, in terms of my um, the piece uh, that you're carrying, uh, one of the ways in which it refers to that is in a slightly odd way, perhaps, having to do with the symbolism of the blackthorn stick. And that blackthorn stick, of course, is associated in the novel with the citizen, uh, who is this ultra- nationalist character whom um, Stephen meets um, in the pub uh, along with his dog Gary Owen and uh, the citizen models himself somewhat on Daniel O'Connell who of course was uh, famous for carrying a blackthorn stick or shillelagh as it's sometimes known. So the notion of Irish nationhood is, is embodied there right the way through. Well, I wonder, is it is it uh, reaching too far on my behalf when you, you're talking about state and the ideas of statehood as they were for Irish people at that time, they were in some way synonymous with, with freedom, freedom from oppression, freedom from poverty, freedom from hunger. I mean, Ulysses is full of that kind of idea of appetite and getting what you need, but it's also a very freeing and free expression of Joyce's art, isn't it? That's the point about it. It's supposed to free the reader as much as it may bemuse them. Is that too much of a stretch that, I, that I'm making to connect those things? I suppose to see the form that Ulysses takes as a kind of political statement in itself. I don't think it's too much of a stretch. I mean, my own view is that Anything we, we might come up with vis-a-vis <laughs> -vis how this particular novel works, one can be almost certain that Joyce has come, already come up with it. <laughs> I mean, his mind was quite remarkable. Uh, freedom from um, England, of course, was a major consideration. And heaven knows at the risk of uh, sounding inappropriate, perhaps, you know, uh, we, we continue to see right into the 21st century in the attitude of our friend Boris Johnson, 
something of the disregard for Ireland and the Irish that were familiar 100, 200, or perhaps 300 years ago. It's quite clear that Boris Johnson thinks the Irish don't really count and anything they might think doesn't count. That, of course, is one thing that uh, Joyce and his fellow countrymen would have been thinking. Another tyranny that Joyce was certainly very keen of putting behind him was the tyranny of the Catholic Church. And uh, he certainly viewed the Catholic Church in that way. The the fact that his novel was banned left, right and (laughs) centre would have been an attempt to, I suppose, taunt the powers that were um, in in the country in terms of the received ideas of what's appropriate uh, in how we conduct ourselves in life and indeed in a novel. So he was um, railing against that oversight both politically and in terms of the the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. Can I just wind us back, not to the very beginning with Moses, we will also get to Moses, but um, there's a phrase in which you tell us what references you find in that first sentence. I just wondered if you could could, um, give us the list, because I think people will be surprised and delighted with the kidney stones and plums, I mean that list. Yeah, so basically the piece I've written, uh, which you're, kindly publishing, um, really uh, moves around mostly over those first three or four words, stately plump buck. And I point to the fact that the state, of course, is in stately. We see that uh, the word plum is there in the word plump. And of course, the plum becomes very important uh, right the way uh, through the novel with Stephen's parable of the plums. And uh, which, of course, has to do with two uh, Dublin vestals, as he describes them, a reference to the the wise and foolish virgins, a sort of sideways reference to them who go up to the top of Nelson's pillar with, among other things, a bag of plums and then uh, drop the plum stones down through the railings of the pillar and onto an unsuspecting public. So I go to town a little bit on the... The significance of the plum, which of course is a, a version of a slow, an S-L-O-E, which is the fruit of the blackthorn, uh, which of course is the shillelagh that we mentioned earlier on. And as it happens, the word arnia, uh, which we know best, I suppose, from the place name Killarney, Killarney, the wood of sloes, also happens to be a word for a kidney. And a kidney is the moist, tender land that we met just as we meet Leopold Bloom going out to buy a kidney. So there's a huge interconnectedness of imagery associated with these words. The buck in Buck Mulligan, of course, refers itself to some notion of a peak, a pike, a pick, a poke, and some sharpish object. Indeed, the Irish word for a goat is puck. So what's happening with Joyce, I believe, in this particular case, is that all these ideas are commingled and uh, bouncing one off the other. And that's the kind of writer he is. And I think that's the kind of reader he expects. Uh, I mean, one runs the risk, of course, of putting off some readers by suggesting that 
uh, one's involved in some great crossword puzzle as one mm. embarks on a reading of Joyce. And that would be unfortunate. Um, I certainly don't want to suggest that it's really a book for those who might be interested in crossword puzzles, though there is that in it. It's a book, I think, that reads much more readily, much more easily than many have imagined. And I think usually it has to do with the imagination of what the book might be, that it might not somehow be for the ordinary person, which is a problem. Yes, I've always thought that was actually that's something that the, I don't know, literary criticism has done a real disservice to it, because I think you just got to jump in. I think people are frightened of it because, as you say, there is this idea that you have to be at least kind of professor level to be able to understand it. But I think you just, I mean, I jumped in when I read it first, just in ignorance <laughs> and kind of swam through it and I got some of it and I didn't get lots of it, but I found it kind of wonderful and stimulating. And then if you want to, you can go back and you can do of the work. And, and also because he's such a musical writer, just the same with Finnegan's Wake, though I don't, do not pretend to have read Finnegan's Wake. If you read it out loud, it makes much more sense often. Yes, and there are, I mean, there are absolutely wonderful recordings and voices, not least by, uh, by RTE of, the, um, of Ulysses, aren't there, Paul? There are indeed, and that uh, is, is the way to think of it. I actually think of it now more and more as a drama. And certainly there's an RTE recording, Radio Telefisher and the National Broadcaster recording of Ulysses, which brings that to the fore. And actually it's very useful in the way we think about the Westland, which was modelled somewhat on Ulysses. I think it's almost uh, best to think of the Westland as a drama also. But as, as you say, I mean, I think the professors, perhaps including the likes of myself, have been somewhat to blame. Joyce remarked, as you recall, that, you know, he was in some sense he was writing so that it, the professors would be busy for a century. Uh, and I think it's an unfortunate aspect of it. And as you say, if you just read it as if you were reading, uh, actually, the novel that came out last week, uh, rather than this huge work of art, I think you're probably better situated. I suspect that for many readers, they come upon a line, and I think the first time I read it, I came upon it myself, this line, ineluctable modality of the visible. And the one time I taught Ulysses, I actually told my students that when they met that line, it's the opening of uh, one of the early-ish chapters or, or episodes, I said, you know what? Just skip it, go to the next one and keep going. Because I think many have foundered on that particular rock, you know? Mm. I mean, it is, as we say, it's it's a richly comic novel, which, which you know, obviously is related to the fact that it is it is a, a work of voices. It's, it's just sort of endlessly polyphonic, I suppose. And, but it's very, very funny. I kind of feel uh, that it's also a teasing novel. And in a way, Paul, your choice to just... Uh, focus on these first few sentences is that itself a kind of uh slightly tongue-in-cheek retort to people th who think they've got to kind of plow through this immense work of sort of exegesis well it's it's prompted partly uh well i think we should slow down as readers i do think we should um you know, we, we tend to keep zooming on and there's something to be said for it. And particularly when one is faced by a novel of this size. But I think slowing down is, is actually 
uh, the thing to do. Um, I'm, I was prompted partly uh, by the fact that Finnegan's Wake, the aforementioned, which, as you say, is more or less impossible to read. In fact, I think there's no shame in saying it's impossible to read, because even if one has worked one's way through it and one's eye has lighted upon every word of it, as mine has, I would not nonetheless pretend to have read it, because the next time one would read it, quote unquote, one would be reading a slightly different book because there are different qualities that come out as the words are playing against each other, those best words in the best order to go back mm. to college. But Joyce, somewhere along the way, has suggested, or it certainly has been suggested by others, that every three or four, four words, perhaps, of Finnegan's Wake uh, represent uh, a particular structure that Joyce saw in uh, Vico, and that actually every four words of Finnegan's Wake include the whole in terms of the structure of the entire book. And of course, we tend to think of it as a single sentence, but we might also think of Finnegan's Wake as a series of four or five word episodes. Lots of little spirals. Does that that just means we can read four four words of it and go, there we go, I'm done. I've read it. So maybe I have read it after all. <laughs> well, I'm really interested. Paul, we we were just um I just bumped into you very recently. We were at a festival here in Ireland. I have to say I moved here a few years ago. My attempts to learn Irish have not been fantastic. But speaking to you today, I think I've got to sort of and realizing the allusions and references to to Irish words in Ulysses. I realize I've got to redouble my efforts. But you were Talking about Eliot at that festival in the Wasteland, you were also talking about the lyrics of, of Paul McCartney, which you've worked on so much. Of course, McCartney, obviously an Irish heritage songwriter. Do you see a sort of a kind of continuum between all these different kinds of artworks that seem to come from so many different places in the culture and even geographically? Well, I do think it's uh, striking that this rather small country, you know, has produced such an extraordinary range of writers, you know, for centuries. I was out walking this morning in Dublin and I noticed um, on a you know, book stall um, an edition of Stern, selected Stern, which included Lauren Stern, which included, of course, the life and opinions of Tristram Shandy. There's much of Shandy, uh, there's much of Stern, and it's much of Swift in Joyce. And there is, I think, a, a continuum of interest. One of the things that is perhaps less to the fore for many critics, and understandably so, because I doubt if there are all that many literary critics who have had any sense uh, of the Irish language, who've been on the world stage, as it were. But there are some who have pointed to Joyce's interest in Irish literature, and I mean in Gaelic, and actually his interest in Irish. And I know just from experience that when one says that, um, even to people in Ireland, there's a little bit of poo-pooing and tut-tutting because uh, there's a feeling that while Joyce might readily have made an allusion to, you know, a German concept or perhaps um, something in Sanskrit, that the idea of his ever uh, being abreast of the Irish language 
is a non-starter. And that seems to me to be a non-starter in itself. So one of the things that I do point to in this piece that you're carrying is that um, in addition to the Odyssey as a template, being perceived as a template for Ulysses, another template which uh, has been proposed by a number of scholars is actually a an Irish Imram tale, a voyage tale known as Imram Curig Muldoon, the voyage of Muldoon's Curragh or boat, uh, which includes a number of episodes that are reflected, a number of components that are reflected in the novel. And there's a great book uh, by Maria Chimoso, I believe it, her name is pronounced, called The Irish Ulysses. And it's really well worth reading if anyone's interested in this area. Yes, I was going to say, along with the, obviously, as we said, there's a lot of religious Christian reference and iconography, there's classical reference, there's the Irish myth that you've just mentioned. So there's a lot of kind of academic or high-flown material, but this is Ulysses, and you you quote Joyce saying, without the body, there is no mind. There's plenty of bodily allusions and slightly kind of mucky bits, aren't there, especially with the plums and the kidneys and all of that? Well, yes. I mean, uh, Joyce uh, was uh, a person who, as I think any decent artist, uh, this is perhaps too large a, a pronouncement, perhaps all pronouncements are too large, you know, he was someone who attempted to give us life in all its variety. And that included the bits that were, you know, not necessarily uh, the most attractive, or at least not those that, you know, we would necessarily want to uh, be thinking about first thing in the morning. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, that, and, that, and that would include some of the things that many think about first thing in the morning, which, you know, are important parts of our lives, but which somehow don't necessarily get into our art. And so Joyce, I think, was quite uh, unabashed, among other writers, but quite unabashed in presenting us with a world that was total. I mean, the notion of totality, of course, is one that comes into play in this particular um, essay. And our general sense with Joyce that we never quite get the totality of it. And indeed, that inspires that parable, that very strange parable, which seems to have no point, unlike most parables, that Stephen um, Dedalus presents uh, of the, the parable of the plums, which has to do with the Pisgah site this S-I-G-H-T of Palestine, the sense that um, as with uh, Moses, who had prepared the way, as it were, for the promised land, he himself does not reach it because of a particular action or inaction that he's taken, involving, by the way, a stick. So that his sense of the promised land is partial, it's incomplete. And I think for many of us, uh, that's our sense of a novel like this also. And what I'm trying to suggest actually is that there's nothing strange about that. We can't necessarily see a novel in its totality. We see it bit by bit. We, we glimpse, as we reread it, we glimpse uh, one particular range of foothills. Uh, we might on another uh, reading, another occasion, 
read something slightly different. And in fact, in that sense, as with any great poem, perhaps any great movie, it's certainly clear with Finnegan's Wake, as we described earlier, and it's no less clear perhaps with Ulysses that it's almost inevitable that we won't see it all and that perhaps we should be content with that. Yes, I like you, you say that in the piece, it's not, it's not that we should feel inadequate because we can't understand it all straight away, it's that that's how it is. That's, that's, how, you, that's how we see many things. I think that's right. And, you know, the notion of the promised land, which, of course, has got to do with Ireland being a nation, which has got to do with there being um, a Jewish nation, a promised land in that respect. And the notion of the chosen people and their fate is one that was very, very uh, significant in the history of Irish politics. It was a trope to which Daniel O'Connell and uh, Parnell alluded, and they were described often as being Moses figures themselves. So this uh, is all part of a mix of images and kind of half-glimpsed motifs that are swirling around the novel. I wonder if I could ask you how you'll be marking this Bloomsday. I know there are always various celebrations and commemorations. Is there anything particular that you'll be up to? Well, today I will have been giving a version of this talk uh, at uh, Molly, as it's known. That's M-O-L-I, the Museum of Literature Ireland. And of course, that's just one event in that particular um, building uh, on St. Stephen's Green. It's actually a building that adjoins Newman House and where, where Joyce uh, attended some lectures when he was at UCD. Um, but frankly, the joint will be jumping. The entire city will be jumping. There's a huge conference here at the moment, which runs for several days. And um, I'm sure there'll be lots of uh, street parties, lots of people dressing up and lots of people uh, kicking off the day with uh, one of those moist, tender glands, a kidney. Um, I'll tell you, it's very, very dangerous to be a kidney uh, in Dublin. (laughs) (laughs) Or a pint of Guinness, maybe. Well, a pint of Guinness, yes, but a kidney for sure. Kidneys are premium. (laughs) (laughs) Well... Thank you very much. Maybe we could all celebrate. Not This is a thing we say at the TLS. I can't remember where it comes from, shamingly. To celebrate not wisely, but too well. Um, <laughs> Paul, thank you very much for being our guide today. It's a pleasure. Thank you. to come on the show Tessa Hadley at the Hay Festival and if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas, and I'm going to talk to Alex about the other thing you've been up to this week. Not just gadding about at festivals, is it? It's also talking about a, a prize, I believe. Yes, and it's a it's a very sort of TLS friendly prize because the chair of the judges was very own fiction editor Toby Lishtig, uh, and in fact, we've been working on this for months and months. It was this year the announcement of the winner of the EBRD Literature Prize 2022, which is a prize that recognises literature in translation and also its translators. And we were really delighted yesterday to unveil the winner, uh, which is a novel called The Orphanage, written by Zerche Jadam and translated from the Ukrainian by Riley Costigan-Humes and Isaac Stackhouse-Wheeler. And we had a wonderful uh, online event in which we heard from Sergei Jadam via video link from Kharkiv. And then we talked directly to the two translators. It was absolutely fascinating. And it was such a joy to work with Toby and with the other judges, Boris Jaliuk and Catherine Murphy. Uh, it's just been such a fun and exciting thing to read and so genuinely horizon broadening. And well, so tell us, I mean, that's extraordinary that you talked to him from Kharkiv, but tell us a little bit about the, the book, because I'm afraid I don't don't know about it. Well, the book is is set in a, a sort of unnamed war zone, 
but uh, it, it, it relates to Sergei Chardin's own home area and it's inspired by the events of the last few years. Uh, and so it is essentially a kind of portrait of the Donbass. And it is about a, a teacher who goes into a sort of city from the very kind of suburbs, the edges of the city, in order to fetch home his nephew. There's an interesting discussion around, uh, around the title of the book, The Orphanage. His nephew is not an orphan, but he is at a sort of residential school. It's interesting that the translators were telling us that the orphanage is what they settled on because there is no absolute sort of equivalent uh, word in, in English. It's sort of like a kind of residential home. And so Pasha, this English teacher, goes off to try and get him. And it's a kind of strange sort of almost picaresque or anti-picaresque, I suppose, journey through this kind of blasted zone in which he's he's kind of making all these strange encounters. He has to constantly assess who is enemy, who is friend. He People come into the narrative and glance out of it really suddenly. It's got a sort of a real quality of kind of unreality and also a sort of strangely folkloric sort of quality it's got that kind of pilgrim's progress sort of feel to it it's, it's just such an exciting novel and it's so mm. great to be able to kind of bring that to a sort of wider audience we hope and so you talked to him from Kharkiv and he, well I mean, he kind of... well he talked to us he, he recorded us a message he wasn't able to join us live but yes we heard what he had to say from Kharkiv it was really interesting and it sounds as though the book is well, uh, it kind of horribly prescient. I mean, it was about, so it was about that region absolutely a, a, a absolutely. few years ago, was it? But now it must be, it must be even more like that. Absolutely. But both, both he and the translators, and we also, we also talked to his English language publisher, uh, you know, are very clear. And I think this is what impressed us as judges too. There is a great sort of universality about it because it's not, you know, the specifics and the particularities are not, are not, overtly named it's a kind of human story as much as it's a story about war mm. uh, and tell us the name again it is called the orphanage it's by Serhi Jadan so obviously you know, I've been talking about Toby in connection to that prize but now we have Toby in yet another incarnation um, as listeners will remember we were at the Hay Festival last week and here is an edited extract of Toby Lichtig's interview with the novelist Tessa Hadley I really didn't want to write a book which was a romance which said inside this marriage this woman is thwarted and frustrated poor her she's married to a dreary old husband who's a civil servant and she needs to get out and find free love it, it really it's the irony is meant to play in all kinds of directions and I'm probably at least as sympathetic to Roger as mm. I am to Phyllis he seems to me a really complicated interesting man he is a war hero, actually. We know he's been brave, courageous, audacious. He may be working in the Foreign Office, but he's actually a socialist. And yeah. he's working, in fact, for Harold Wilson, who has declined some years previously to go in follow the Americans into Vietnam. So, you know. And he's sort of working in the system to perhaps change the system a little bit, not in a revolutionary way, but in a, in a sort of He's a pessimistic realist, yes. isn't he? Yes, yes. And, and in the book, I wanted to give his pessimistic realism as much room to breathe as Nicky, the young man who's about to break into this this contented marriage, uh, as I wanted to give to Nicky's 
revolutionary conviction that the whole system is foul and corrupt at its heart and that the only way forward is to break it. To break it all. So you've got, yeah, Nikki. So, so Nikki is the dinner party guest. Mm-hmm. Phyllis and Roger have two children. You've got Colette, who's 15, and... Hugh's nine, Q's I Hugh's nine, yeah. and he's yeah. sort of, you know, yeah. off playing, and he sort of comes into it a bit later as well. But they're sort of around, but it's, re- it's really the, the focus quickly comes on to Nikki. He's this young guest. He's a young man yeah. in his early 20s. And Phyllis thinks, oh, I met him when he was a child, and he was a bit of a bore. Do I really want to go through this? But he then turns up, and she's instantly rather taken with him. Or perhaps not instantly. He's, he's drunk. Yep. He's wearing a dirty he's shirt. He can't really fasten his tie properly. He's late and rude. He hardly tries to describe why he's late. The, he, I think rather than her thinking, he's gorgeous, he is like a, he's like a needle pushed mm. into that contentedness that we began with. He, 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 what the actual moment of transition as I describe it, is that he's sitting at the table, she's getting him a gin and tonic. The whole evening is fairly drunk. People drank a lot in the Mm. 60s. And um, she's put her hand in the ice bucket to fish out the ice cubes, and her hand is very cold. She puts her hand on his shirt in a sort of faintly, amiably flirty way, and he recoils, actually, just because her hand is cold. And she thinks... It's a challenge. It's a challenge. She thinks, I'm repulsive. Mm. I'm old. She's mm. actually 40. She's not 40, in her sorry. late 30s. And, and 40 is, was an absolute watershed. When I, when I wrote the first paragraph of the novel, I wrote, Phyllis was 40 and yet still pretty. Something mm. like that's mm. not the example. My American publisher said, what do you, don't you mean... Uh, no, sorry. I wrote... She was 40, but still pretty. And the American publisher said, don't you mean and still pretty? And I said, no, in the 1960s, it really was. If you were 40, it was a surprise if you were still pretty. You were lucky. You were ahead of the game because 40 was a terrible watershed for women in those days. I can remember my Mm. own mum turning 40 and actually just refusing to let anybody know. So it's as if her old age the end of her sexual attractiveness all comes calling all at once in that one moment when the the young man who obviously despises their bourgeois way of life puts it recoils from her hand on his shoulder and it's suddenly all that pleasedness all that afloat in contempt sort of so that's bound up with her own identity as an attractive yeah. sexual yeah. young yeah. woman yeah and it's that's why she leaves oh. it isn't to do with the counterculture, but that comes with it. It comes on the back of Nikki, comes her whole new relationship to the world. Well, that's actually a question I was going to ask a bit later, but I'll ask mm. it now. How much was it this one character, this one young man, that took her to leave her marriage? Or was this, was this always going to happen at some point? Was there always going to be some no. young man who recoiled from her? Or no, is it just think, pure no, chance? I think there's another world, a sliding doors yep. alternative, where Phyllis does live on into the sort of cheerful, contented middle age that she's fantasised for herself until suddenly it all shrivels when, he touches, when she touches him and he recoils. So, no, I don't think it's inevitable. I'm not a great believer in inevitability. Well, no, I say, that's, that's very much what I got from reading the book, and it's one of the things I love about it so much, that there is just this 
chance thing and it, yeah. you know, it makes us all think about our yeah. own lives and our own choices yeah. and what you know the accidents the, that the, happen the cold hand we might have placed yeah. on someone else's shoulder and what that might have happened you know what that might have caused. then she comes to visit you <laughs> yeah. in your room yes, exactly <laughs> we, which we were about to get on nikki is expecting yeah. when she when she does turn up so they chance takes them outside and they're in the dark and they mm. have a bit of a snog don't they and yes. he's he's sort of Care, careless and, yes. you know, doesn't really think much of it. It, it isn't actually really desire even. Yeah. I mean, they're out in the dark. More opportunity. They are all drunk. He thinks, if I'm not bourgeois, I ought to do something scandalous. Mm. Do you know where I get that from? As that wonderful Stendhal novel, The Scarlet and Black, Black, where Julien, the young hero, is out in the garden with his employer's wife, Madame de Renal, for whom he feels no desire. Mm. He isn't in the least in love with her. And he says to himself, if I'm a proper revolutionary, if I'm Napoleonic in the right spirit, I should make advances to her. And he holds her hand. And of course, for her, it's the most extraordinary, momentous moment. And for him, it's it's a piece of male ego, actually, mm. uh, Julien. But uh, for Nicky, too, he's just mm. carelessly does this thing. And actually, there's that, it, that's an interesting reflection of him generally because there's a sort of a carelessness and an earnestness about yeah. his supposed revolutionaryness. Yeah. You know, he sort of has to kind of talk himself into it. And in a way, his class background is a big part of that. And there's a very interesting class interplay, I thought, going on between Phyllis, Roger and mm. Nicky at this stage because they're all from slightly different mm -hmm. positions in this very hidebound yep. class yeah, yep. I mean, Nicky, of and course, is actually the most privileged. He's a posh one. He's a really he's, posh one. He's posh. His his mum comes from that kind of family who've been who've had land and stately homes for ages. Now, rather impoverished, and the stately homes sort of falling apart a bit. It's not a big one. And and the establishment bourgeois Roger, who Nicky despises, was as a young man, as a soldier, was billeted, wasn't he? Yeah. At at this lovely stately yeah. home. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And went to a grammar school. Yeah. And um. Meanwhile, Phyllis, who's sort of floaty 1960s, posh and charming, her dad actually got a peerage for selling metal-framed windows. So I, I am laying out a map of the, of the delicious intricacies of the British middle classes, aren't I? Yeah. Which is always fun to do. Yeah, it works brilliantly. It's really fun. It's really fun. <laughs> um, so this happens. There's a snog. Nicky goes off. He's terribly embarrassed afterwards, actually. He's, when they're back yes. in the house, he sort of apologises desperately to her, little knowing that she's Which, thinking, I have a lover, I have a lover. And I guess the apology is further challenged to her, isn't it? She's thinking, well, wait a sec. I think she even yeah. notices it, to be honest. Right, right. She's, she's one... I say something about her. I say something like, she, she, once she got an idea, she had lovely lightness and ease, but when she got an idea into her head, she's a bit unstoppable. She's stubborn. And she thinks now, this is it. He's the one. There's a future in this. And she hardly listens when he's actually saying, oh, I'm so awfully sorry, mm. falls back on his good upbringing, you know. <laughs> and Roger's not aware at all of anything happening. Roger's oblivious. He's completely oblivious. Yep. And then she rocks up at Nicky's apartment. She finds, yes. his, she finds his address. Yes. And suddenly she just turns up out of the blue one day. Yeah, yeah. Looking like a charity worker, he thinks, because yes. she brings this bit of a play with his shirt because his shirt is, after they've been in the garden, gets dirty and she washes it and irons it. So she turns up with a basket on her arm and a clean shirt in it, but, but her plans are not just to hand the shirt back. Yeah, and, and, and an affair begins and he obviously doesn't turn her down. She, she does. It, 
When I wrote the book, I kind of realized at some point before I started, I thought, even though this is not that romance book in which sexual love delivers the answer, the, the, the miracle, it's not that, it's a social comedy, I've actually still got to make it sexually, got to make some spark. I've yeah, got to give it sparkle and, and make something between them. So, so once she turns up in his room and he accepts the fait accompli and they make love and then she starts coming every Wednesday to his room, it's something for both of them. It's a real initiation for him. In fact, much later on in the book, just jumping ahead a bit, uh, Phyllis's daughter Colette really doesn't like Nicky that first evening she meets him in their suburban home. She's very bright, we should say. She's Colette very bright. is very bookish and very bright. Observes everything around. She thinks he's own. a fool and a fraud and she sees how he despises them. She then meets him again much, much later when he's her mother's established lover. This is later. I am jumping ahead. And she really doesn't like him that much better. But she sees that he's transformed. Mm. He looks like a man. He doesn't look like a foolish boy. He's, he's, he's got a gloss and a power and a kind of attractiveness to him that he didn't have. And, and, and he starts seeing the world differently. And I can't remember there's a passage when he starts looking at all women and he thinks, yeah, my gosh, you, you're, all, yeah. you're all hiding these sexual beings yeah. underneath these shells. I yeah. hadn't realised. And now, and so it's almost... As you say, she's initiated him. Yeah. That's, that gives him confidence to yeah. then go out into the world and betray sleep as well and sleep with lots of people. And... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so it does all that for Nikki, and it, it does extraordinary things to Phyllis as well because she's a survivor too. I mean, it, and it, it, it will end up perhaps not, I'm, I'm jumping ahead here as well, not fulfilling Phyllis completely, but she never regrets it and she has a new self, a new life, new adventures. And it's, of course, and it's not, it is, in, it is by no means just about the sex for her. It's about, as you say, this new way of thinking. Mm. And when she leaves Roger, I can't remember what the line is, I think I've written it down somewhere, but she says something like, um, she realises she must change her way of seeing, change the way mm. she lived. Mm. And so you've got this Notting Hill world, which kind of represents that. Mm in opposition to the bourgeois suburbia. Could you talk a little bit about that Notting Hill world mm. in 1967 and what it looked like and felt like and to her in particular? Mm. It was a sort of opposite to, to the little, the Thames suburban uh, place she'd come from where everything was regulated and the gardens were neat and well tended and the, the, the shop, you know, you went shopping with your basket over your arm Instead, there was something crazy and anarchic. Great big houses, fallen upon hard times, full of an extraordinarily mixed, rich, multicultural community. I mean, much more what we're used to now in our great metropolises. Um, so there's, there, there's, there's a West Indian community. There's, there's a Jewish community. Uh, there's, an, there's young hippies and dropouts. And there are old white working class Families interleaved with them. It's, it's it's a melting pot in a very modern, new way. Artists, and artists, and tarot card readers and boxers. It's 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 a sort of crazy place, holding all that fervor and ferment together. A sense of any possibilities. I, I mean, I really. There's one scene in the middle of the book which I I had right from the beginning, 
I knew it was pivotal where she's in Nikki's room. It's before she's left her marriage, but it's the first time they spend the night together and they, they, they make passionate love. He falls asleep. He says something slighting about Roger and his work. He mm. says, men like your husband send bombs, napalm, to, to be dropped onto children. Which is, they say he works in the, for the Foreign Office. Which is Roger works that. for the Foreign Office. It, you know, a, a classic sort of, you know, a, a true critique. <laughs> I, my own, in my own politics, I go backwards and forwards between feeling like Nikki, that sin is endemic in Western normal liberalism. And then I'm Roger and I'm thinking, be a pessimist, realist, do the best you can. Uh, you know, but I wanted to give Nikki's slighting remark its moment in the novel. And he says, everything you think is decent and normal and people doing their best is actually criminal mm. and appalling and its consequences in the world are unforgivable. He says that as the small change of counterculture chit-chat. Mm. That's what everybody thought. Mm. Phyllis, in her innocence, she's so not an intellectual. She hasn't read anything. She doesn't know anything. Nonetheless, in that night, takes it on. She sits up when he's fallen asleep in the bed and she sits in the cold of his room in her petticoat and she thinks through all the places she has not allowed her thought to go before... have time for this week our thanks go to paul muldoon toby lishtig and tessa hadley and thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by charlotte pardy we'll be back next week but for now from lucy dallas and from me goodbye deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.